following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Hi, everybody. This is former WWE superstar Al Snow. And- My name is Eugene. And you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. Now get on the train. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WZWA Network in conjunction with Blue Wire Hustle. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California in Fury. So great to be with you this morning. I'm aware that I look like a bag of shit right now, but uh, as you all know, usually we do interviews later at night but you know we we had an opportunity here today to talk to somebody who has been a a massive bucket list guy and without any further ado ladies and gentlemen it is my honor to introduce here today on the insider's edge the one and only infamous legendary sick nick mondo how you going my friend doing good thank you guys for taking the time to chat here i'm looking forward happy to be here Absolutely. And uh, first and foremost, right out of the gates, I uh, wanted to ask you uh, your thoughts on the recent uh, Game Changer Wrestling show that you were able to be at. Oh, man, my thoughts. Well, that was uh, lots of thoughts. That was an incredible weekend. Um, it was, they. I think there were three or four shows. Um, and I was out there for the Deathmatch Hall of Fame, um, but I did hang around, watch some matches and... Um, actually came out during tournament of survival to introduce the trophy for the finals. Um, but overall, I, you know, what just really struck me is it was the first time in over a year that I felt like, wow, this is like post COVID, um, which I know we're not completely out of the woods yet, but like I showed up with a mask on, took it off and I didn't put it on to like three and a half days later. And, uh, you know, I'm vaccinated, of course. Um, but early on, I had told Brett, the promoter, like, <clears throat> you know, if I do this, like, people are going to want to be taking pictures, arm around the shoulder and stuff like that. And I said, I'm a little concerned because, like, um, I've been working on productions here in Atlanta and we have to uh, mask up and we get tested, like, every day. Um, so if you test positive, like, you're gone. Um but again, I'm vaccinated. And um, so I, I when I said that to Brett, he said, well, we're in a pandemic. If you don't want to do that, don't worry at all. That's just the way it is. And uh, but I was comfortable with the situation and everybody, the energy was just so positive, man. It was just so exciting. You know, it just felt like we're back. Um, so I, I had a blast. Yeah, it must have been a thrill for sure. Uh, after all this time, I guess people kind of forget how, uh, you know, amazing just the regular life you know that you live is and just being being able to go to a wrestling show and have there be a full crowd is uh certainly something that's thrilling after all this time uh let's let's get to this uh deathmatch hall of fame induction alongside supreme's daughter and gene over the weekend um what did it mean to you to be inducted into this uh hall of fame and 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 be bestowed on this with this honor it really meant a lot to me and um you know, it was sandwiched between uh, two shows, this this uh, Deathmatch Hall of Fame event. And I was kind of wondering, like, is this just going to be an obligation that, you know, people go to like, okay, I guess we need to sit here and listen to this. But 
I'll say like, it was a really good time. They kept it entertaining. Um, there was a beautiful intro for um, Supreme, of course, uh, Sage Sin Supreme accepted on his behalf. Um, and then Eugene, who built a bunch of deathmatch wrestling contraptions, uh, Cage of Death, and he's just like an architect of all that stuff. He was there and a bunch of wrestlers came up on stage to honor him and made it really entertaining and funny. And it was just a great time. Um, I, if uh, people don't know, I carried a title when I was wrestling and I, I still had the title when I retired, the Iron Man title. And Brett Lauderdale got that thing for me. Uh, I could grab it if you want to see it. Hell yeah, man. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, let me go get it. <laughs> oh man, it's be fucking awesome. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I love when guys bring the belts on the show. Yeah, I can't stop playing with my toy. <laughs> oh, oh man, that's awesome, so, dude. Awesome. That's incredible stuff, man. It's actually it's actually got a few uh it's got some wear and tear and somebody changed the logos on it and stuff like that. So I'm going to doctor it up and redo some of the lettering actually in metal. I can print in metal and redo some of the paint and the CZW logos and stuff, but it's got a ton of signatures on it. We've wow. got Kevin, we've got Kevin Steen. We've got um, Wife Beater, Adam Flash, um, a ton of a ton of people on here who held this belt. Lufisto, and uh, yeah, Nick Burke, and and all sorts of people. So um, yeah, Sammy Callahan, and so yeah, <laughs> it's pretty sweet. This was a gift they gave me, and boy, it means a lot to me. No, oh, man, uh, it, it would have to mean so much to you. I mean, I know that wasn't your first CZW championship, um, but that, you know, that was one that I believe you held the most in CZW um, on then, yourself. Yeah, just this, the sacrifices for that thing, too. I, I said during my speech, I might have knocked off a year or two of my life. I mean, just like I said, I can point to my back and show you the scars from when I won that thing um, that night. And it's so, yeah, I, I put a lot of pride and hard work into that. And it's it's really exciting to have it again rightfully so man it's awesome it's great bro it's been a while since you'd you know come out there in front of uh, your audience and uh i wanted to know how it felt hearing uh cut my life into pieces uh you know uh, last resort by papa roach one more time before walking through the curtain at gcw tournament of survival 666 brett asked me last minute if i would do that and said sure why not? And uh, it was pretty funny because I can remember fans, you know, singing that song, but it was like the whole place in unison just sang it when the lyrics hit. And um, so that was, that was really a trip. And like I say, just, I think the fact that this is the first, you know, GCW show really back after COVID just made everybody appreciate everything so much more. So man, what an experience. I just talked to Johnny Cashmere, who was uh, present, and he said that was one of the best weekends I ever remember having. And he said, I, I still have an adrenaline buzz from just the, the reconnecting with everybody and the experience and a live show again. So it was it was great. That's yeah, great, bro. Um, I wanted to, OK, take it from the present and bring it all the way to the beginning at this point um, before I throw it over to Jack with his round of questions. Uh First question we usually ask on the show is, how did you become a wrestling fan when you were a young man? I wasn't a wrestling fan as a kid, unlike most people, uh, until ECW came around. And so I was about maybe 15. Friend bought, brought me to a show and, whoa, okay. So this is, this is different. Um, 
it's a little more intense, a lot more intense. Um, and I was hooked. Um, I was living on the East Coast United States. So I got to see a lot of shows. We'd see house shows, small venues. There was one that only held a little more than 200 people. And I saw Rey Mysterio Jr., Chris Jericho, Cactus Jack, Sabu, uh, Steve Austin, all sorts of people wrestle there in front of about 200 people. It was really something. And then, of course, the ECW arena, that which energy that people just talk about is legendary. But I will say, um, just jumping ahead real quick, I've experienced that energy again at GCW shows. I didn't think I ever would, but um, a couple of years ago, I attended a show in Los Angeles and I said, they've recreated that same vibe. Um, they had a mix. They brought in Masato Tanaka and they had some comedy and they had some high flying stuff and in the jungle boy and, um, and Jimmy, Jimmy Lloyd and, you know, Nick Gage and Jimmy Havoc and, um, Alex Zane. And I mean, it was, it was, uh, they've recreated that, but, but yeah, e ECW is what, what got me into wrestling. I can totally, uh, see how mind blowing something like that would have been back in the day, especially during that time period. And it's really awesome to know that you actually were able to be there at that stage of ECW when guys like Ray and Hoovy and, and Steve Austin, uh, were, were on the show. Um, and you know, from that point, uh, I guess you, you, you've been bit by the, the wrestling bug as a lot of people, uh, as, as a lot of people deal with uh, when they become a fan. At some point, though, you want to get into the business. How do you uh, go about finding a school? You end up training with Al Snow. Um, how, how do you get into the wrestling business? I was eager to get into it. Um, as soon as I graduated high school, I went to work for a concrete company because it was the most money I could make the fastest working 12, 13 hour days and making money. And I worked for, I don't know, five, six months saved up. And uh, I wanted to make it quick. So I researched schools. Um, Al Snow's school was, uh, I think, six hours to the west of me. I was in Pennsylvania and he was in Cleveland, Ohio. And, um, but his training was six hours a day, six days a week. So you lived at the school and um, it was intense. Uh, it was painful, it was brutal, um, but I, I wanted to, let's figure this out and let's get to work. I didn't wanna be, you know, some protege for like a year, a year and a half, which is probably better in most situations. But like, I was just a determined, motivated kid. Like, we're gonna make this happen and I'm, I'm gonna get out there and wrestle. So that's how I did it. Awesome, man. Awesome, bro. Um, and I, I just wanted to also just go back to what you said about GCW because over the weekend, um, that this is the first GCW shows I've caught and been able to like to sort of watch. Um, and I, I'm completely agreeing with you. I'm not a big guy on, you know, a lot of independent promotions these days. GCW, on the other hand, does have something different to it and something that could almost be compared to the original ECW um, with what you just said. And I remember I said, I said this to someone the other day. So um, thank you for sort of reiterating that point. Um so when you were doing uh, sort of training um, with Al Snow, of course, was deathmatch wrestling ever something that had ever crossed your mind when you were training, uh, something you were going to get involved in? You know, it's funny, like I had seen matches from Japan, I, you know, thumbtack matches, uh, 
stuff like that. But the term hardcore was really popular at the time. Um, and extreme, extreme was really popular. There were extreme sports. That was a big deal. You know, the skateboarding, picking up speed and getting a little bit more respect and stuff like that. So in my mind, I wasn't going to become a deathmatch wrestler. Like we had, we had heard of King of the Death Matches in Japan in 1995, but like, it just sounded like a special event or something like that. It wasn't like I'm a deathmatch wrestler, you know, it, the concept wasn't necessarily in my mind, but I was really inspired by the athleticism mixed with some really hard hitting um, and violent uh, stuff in ECW. But my intention was never to take it as far as we did. Um, it was just the ECW style, which I still think is the pinnacle in my mind of the right amount of wrestling and violence mixed. Um, I did an interview recently where picking like three, you know, if you could only pick three matches to watch on a deserted Island, which I don't know why you'd be watching wrestling if you were stuck on an Island, but, but I, one of them I said was, uh, you know, pick anything from Masato Tanaka and Mike Awesome. Oh yeah. Said, if, I, if I had to pick one, maybe I'd say, um, just the, the one night stand or, or was that what it was called when they came back with the, That's it. the WWE promotion, but they might've had better matches, but the, the passion, cause everybody missed it so much. Um, that was as in my mind, as good as anything they had done. And, and to me, that's kind of like the pinnacle of the style of wrestling that I like. Um, you know, I'm not so much just like hungry for pure bloodshed, but like, I like a good combination, you know? Yeah, definitely, man. Um, so you, you make your CZW debut on uh, May the 6th, 2000 against Trent Acid. I uh, just got a couple of questions in regards to this one. So how did you actually uh, sort of get picked up on CZW's radar? Um, of course, looking back at your career, man, you're, you're a gem. So that would have been a massive get for CZW at the time. Um, so how did they discover you? Or how did you get in touch with CZW? I spotted, um, I was going to say, um, actually, Johnny Cashmere was there for my Hall of Fame induction. And I think the video is uploaded. Maybe if you guys want to put it in the link or something. Hmm. Um, but I was going to say, I, I answered this question um, in my Hall of Fame speech this past weekend, because I saw Johnny and um, I was on an indie show like maybe it was a, a PCW Pennsylvania championship wrestling. I think it might've been, but I was planning a spot where I was going to get launched out of the ring and the ring was on a, a roller skating uh, rink. So a hardwood floor. And I was going to take a flip bump and just splat on the floor. And uh, um, I did that bump. But, uh, but when Johnny Cashmere heard me calling that, he's like, I think there's somebody you need to talk to. And um, <laughs> he mentioned me to John, Zandig and John's like, all right, show me his stuff. And, and so I sent in some of my matches and John said, yeah, we'll give him a tryout match. So, so that was it. Awesome, man. And of course, nobody would have uh, ever seen coming how uh, crazy stuff did uh, go on to be. But um, over this time, you know, you ended up having so many memorable matches, um, you know, a handicapped three-way ladder match teaming up with um, the legendary Super Crazy. I mean, you being an ECW guy, that would have been an, an insane experience for yourself. Um, you know, you had the violent six-man tag team match with Zandig and Wife Beater um, against the Backseat Boys and Justice Payne. Um, and of course, an infamous no-rope bar wire match in a thunderstorm with Nick Gage. Uh, that would have also been a very interesting experience. Um, it's clear at this point, uh, you were already building a cult following within CZW and even having kids uh, dress up as you in the crowd, like Rory. Um, how did this sit with you, given um, that you were sort of intending on always having a bit of a shorter career? I'm not sure if from the start you knew you were going to have a shorter career, but um, did you know when you were in CZW that you had to make the most of it? 
my plan was only to wrestle for one to two years, if you can believe it. Wow. I, and I didn't know how the wrestling business worked. And in my mind, I'd finish school. I'd go bang on the door at ECW and I'd be in there with, you know, Tommy Dreamer and Sabu and Rob Van Dam. And like, I'm like, that's where I'm going. I'm going to go work for ECW. And uh, <laughs> so, but no, that's not quite how it works. Um, and so I ended up working closer to five years. So it was longer than I expected, but um, that's why I was burning the candle at both ends, so to speak, because I, my intentions were not to have a long and prosperous career, but to just hit it hard and wild and chaotic and get out. So definitely man and I, i'm 23 now so i could not imagine how you know having a hall of fame worthy wrestling career especially at my age so you know at 23 what were the emotions you had when you had to walk away from the ring i mean i know that was probably you know a sigh of relief per se oh man so many emotions see see i knew i knew i was done um my plan was to retire after a tournament of death too but i think that might have been in the, in july and I don't think I officially announced my retirement until November of that year. And I had already decided that that's going to be my final performance, but it was just, Oh, I was so pulled back and forth in my head and it would, everything I ever wanted from wrestling was offered to me at the end. And after I quit and it kept coming back to me and I never got to wrestle Sabu, but he was one of my all time favorites. Uh, Sabu and Hayabusa were my number two, were number one and two influences. And I had three offers to wrestle Sabu um, after, right after I retired. And people told me he wants to wrestle you. And uh, I was even offered a no, no ropes barbed wire match against him in my hometown in Minneapolis. And like I had already made up my mind and I was actually crying because of that one. I, I, it was. So it was very hard. I was offered very good money. I was offered chances to go back to Japan. Um, TNA was trying to get me. It was, uh, it was so tough. Um, so, it, you know, it, the wrestling is an addiction and it's, it's not easy to quit. And um, yeah, I mean, even to this day, I, I sometimes things tempt me, you know, so. Yeah, I can only imagine, man. Uh, back to you, Carl. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned John Zandig before, and you know we haven't had the chance to have anyone really speak about him on the show before. So I just wanted to know uh, what was it like working with John, and do you have any particular stories that you know highlight what he's like as a person? Yes, tough guy, kind of quiet, kind of kept to himself. You got to earn his respect. The only way you earn his respect is if you're willing to hurt yourself. You know, yeah. so. He loved me, but it was like, because I, I, I won't say no to anything. And, you know, that was the reason, you know, but we had some real top talent come through CZW. I mean, you search YouTube, you'll find CM Punk, you'll find uh, Kevin, Kevin Owens, Kevin Steen talking about like Zandy kind of giving them, giving them a hard time. It's just like, who are you, you know, prove yourself to me. And so, um, but I'll say this, you know, the dude created a wild product that was really exciting for fans. And um, I mean, they, you legit had to protect yourself at shows because there's just glass flying everywhere and chaos. And um, so it was really exciting, but it's just, there was a high cost as well. Um, you know, my, like I say, my plan was to 
have a short career, but had I been under wiser leadership, maybe I would have stuck around longer. If there was somebody, instead of just like giving me everything, every sharp object to play with, um, instead saying, no, we're going to do a slow build and we're going to get the most out of this. Instead, it was just like, okay, who's going to die on the show tonight? You know, and um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's about what, all I can say. I'm grateful. He gave me a stage. He created a quite an atmosphere. And um, so, you know, I'm grateful, but it's just like there were consequences as well. There was a price to pay, you know. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, another obviously infamous moment and, and something that you've mentioned is one of the most painful things you went through in the wrestling business was a, a weed whacker spot with wife beat at the first uh, CCW tournament of death. Tell us a little bit about that. What some people don't know is um, I'm not the first to take that, to take a really bad one to the stomach. I was touring Japan um, a couple of years prior and uh, Yamakawa, um, I don't know if you guys remember him, but he would wear white pants and like a white cowboy hat and he'd kind of do a break dance spinneroony type deal. Japanese guy, really charismatic. Um, he's missing his front teeth. Um, but I saw a wife beater hit him in the stomach in Japan with that thing and it was a bad one. I mean, like, Oh, it got him so bad. And that haunted me. And that was just a small house show because we were touring going all over Japan. I don't know if he intended it for it to be like that, you know, because he's Japanese. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Afterwards, you know, just <laughs> say thanks and move on. But you know, they had to wrap him up and bandage him up and he took some time for him to heal. But um, I was like, because I didn't see a lot of things that I was afraid of and that, that haunted me. And then it was kind of like, I have to do this, which is not a good mindset, mind you. <laughs> if there are any deathmatch guys listening to this, there are much smarter ways to get over. I'm as hypocritical as anybody, but um, I understand the mindset. And so I decided to eventually do that. That was when I picked to do it. Wife Peter and John actually tried to talk me out of it. So completely wow. my my fault um but i knew that there was going to be press there i knew there are some wrestling journalists there in magazines and it got coverage and it went everywhere and you know so all the things i've done in my career that's one of the things that gets talked about the most so <laughs> sorry <Brutal. laughs> absolutely and another thing that gets talked about quite a lot tournament death two working three death matches in one day it sounds like you might need a little bit of uh, bed rest after something like this but uh you should have been dead after the semifinals and then you go on to win the whole tournament. Um, can you tell us about that day? Because it's uh, certainly one of uh, the most infamous days in your career. It was rough. I, uh, I broke my wrist in three places a week prior. Um, and it was one of those cases where right after it happened, I told John Zandig, I just broke my wrist. And, uh, um, and I went back and I got an x-ray and sure enough, it was broken in three places. And, but I could tell it, the question was just like, don't tell me you're going to pull out a tournament of death. And, and I didn't, um, but th that was just the mindset, you know? Um, but, uh, so it was rough. Uh, first round match, JC Bailey, we worked really hard, light tubes and ladders match. And, uh, um, 
second round, yeah, went off the roof with John. It was terrible. Um, he called me a week in advance, asked me if I would do that spot. I told him yes. I showed up and I told him, John, I think that's a little bit too high. He pressured me into doing that. Um, and so I did. I didn't think he was going to pressure me into doing it, but it was too late to go up there and adjust the tables properly because the fans were already in. And so what happens is the ring crew thinks they're protecting you and they push, they tend to put the tables in closer than they need to be. Mm. Uh, but normally you'll go up and, you know, I'll tell them, move it out, move it out there. That's the spot. Um, because you step and you fall forward, you know? And so, yeah, they were too close. We couldn't hit them properly. I overshot my head caught some of the tables, but I went straight to the asphalt two stories down and knocked out completely, completely out black. Um, woke up, was paralyzed um, for a minute. Those tables were going to be burning. That was the original plan. And so I had a stinger, meaning I was knocked out and I was temporarily paralyzed. Somebody would have had to pull me out of the fire if we had uh, done that as planned. Um, so yeah, it was, I was a mess, um, but I knew that I was going to um, retire after this. And so it turned out, I, I think I cut an artery in my back. I don't know, it, it was bleeding so terribly. Um, one of the nurses pulled out a shard of glass and it was spraying, it spraying blood on her. Um, I turned around, it was on her arms and her shirt. They were panicking, they couldn't get it to stop. And they said, we're calling an ambulance. Um, and I said, wrap me up, like I'm, I'm gonna finish this thing. And uh, I was so concussed, um, give credit to Ian Rotten. He completely carried me through that final match, which is a terrible match, but I, I couldn't even put two thoughts together. I was a, I was a mess, um, but that's the reason I finished that night because I just wanted to be done, so yeah. That's fucking crazy, dude. That is crazy. <laughs> Over to it's you, Jack. A, it's a shame that you didn't have any, you know, like much of a recollection of that night. Because I mean, that just would have been special to sort of, uh, if you were able to just remember everything and then be able to put on, you know, the um, the show of your life for the last match. So I mean, it sucks. But I, I mean, that roof spot. I mean, you, you're going to take that home for life as well. So <laughs> I mean, it goes both ways. But I, I've I've also been thinking for years, like, what the hell did your parents think about all this, all about all the death match stuff? Were they ever supportive? They were pretty concerned. Um, I, I had a very good household growing up. Um, and so I hid it from them as much as I possibly could. I didn't tell them anything about it. And my mom was always watching me like a hawk. I'd, I'd show up at her house and she's like, one time I, I broke my nose and I had two black eyes. And so um, <laughs> I put, put my teeth uh, almost all the way through my lip and I had to get stitches. And so I delayed visiting her two weeks until I thought my face looked good enough. And it, as soon as I walked through the door, she's like, what happened to you? And starts crying. Cause I had two faint black eyes still. And um, so I tried to, I tried to keep it from them as much as I could, you know? Yeah. Um, being a character in uh, backyard wrestling too, uh, as well as essentially a staple uh, in all other wrestling games that aren't WWE licensed these days. Uh, were you a big um, video game guy growing up as well? Sort of a segue. I'd say I was a big video game guy until I got my driver's license when I was 17 and then things changed and I just had more options. Um, but I, I love video games up until that point. And I still, you know, it's funny because some people are like, I play two games too much, but I'm like 
pleased when I make time to play games. And so I've got a switch and like, I was happy because during the pandemic, I, I played and finished Breath of the Wild and I love oh, that man. game. And so good. I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, Doom 2016 on the Switch and I got Doom Eternal and I'm going to give that a shot when I'm finished with this one. And so, um, so yeah, but there's a, actually, I'm in a, I'm in a new game that's um, coming out. It's called The Wrestling Code and uh, they've been sending me models of my character for approval back and forth and, and that thing's coming together. Um, so that's, that's going to be on all the major systems and excited for that. That game looks Awesome, man. Um, like I've seen some screenshots of it as well that have been posted online. That they, they look better than WWE 2K. Like those models look better than 2K. And um, it's it's exciting, man. It's exciting. Um, but getting back to some wrestling, um, you returned in 2013 to save uh, Rory Mondo at Cage of Death 15, sort of saving Rory Mondo from himself. Um, of course, you have mentioned today already that, that you have had urges to, you know, go back, maybe have one more match, take a couple more bumps. But how was it for that moment when you were actually, you know, in the ring or on top of the cage of death. Um, was there any urges to, you know, just take bumps and um, pretty much get amongst the match? Uh, do you have any stories from that day? Well, you know, when I showed up, they, uh, they were just like anything you want to do. Um, <laughs> but I did, DJ did say I have to do something in the match because um, Necro Butcher um, got himself into some trouble and was removed from the main event and the show. And so I was essentially filling in for him. Um, but I, I did the bare minimum. I said, okay, well, if you want me to help a team win or whatever, I'll do that. Um, but I didn't come here to wrestle tonight. Um, but yeah, to be honest with you, like I was watching them set up some of the gimmicks and the multi-tier scaffolds with glass. And I'm like, oh, I start getting ideas. And that's <laughs> just how my mind works. Like I, I it's a thrill especially if like I, I know I can survive it and pull it off safely man that's a rush um so so yeah I was getting those urges but like the reason I came back was Rory told me this is going to be my final match as little Mondo I'm going to have them hit me in the stomach three times with the weed whacker and um and I didn't like the idea you know I I remember when he was 10 years old and like 90 pounds and you know I it, it it upset me and I'm like, please don't do this. And he's like, Nope, I'm doing it. And, uh, <clears throat> and I figured just fine, dumb kid, but it bothered me. And then finally, I mean, like two weeks before the show, less than two weeks, I was in Japan living there, but I messaged him. And I was like, if I make an appearance in your match, will you not do the weed whacker? And he's just like, yeah, cool. Sure. <laughs> and i'm like all right i'm coming out <laughs> really i'm like well yeah if if that's what you'll agree to and and i thought i kind of owe it to him to show up once and if it's his last match like let's let's do it you know so that was that was it um so yeah i thought i thought it was awesome and really symbolic man um because you know everyone's seen the picture of you and rory from what like 2002 2003 or 2001 uh very young man both of these look very young and then to sort of see you know a picture of you guys what 10, 11, 12 years later, um, you know, in the cage of death. Um, I think that's, you know, they're the, they're the sort of moments that make wrestling really special. And I don't care if, you know, it's a, if it's deathmatch wrestling or, you know, old school wrestling, like anything like that, like it still makes wrestling wrestling. And I think those, those moments are really special. So I'd rather see that than, you know, Rory Mondo take a weed whacker three times to the stomach. Um, but we, we do know that you have no desire to wrestle 
ever again. Um, and I'm and you've already have pretty much just said here that you would probably never wrestle again. Um, but has the spike in your gut to perform like at that level? Um, that's obviously very well past it. Is there any sort of indication that you would ever return to wrestling sort of, you know, maybe as a uh, broadcaster, or manager, anything like that? I'm sure there's a lot of Nick Mondo fans out there that aren't done with Nick Mondo on TV. I don't want to be in the ring unless it's a hundred percent. And if, if, if I can't uh, match the level that I was at before or surpass it, I don't want to do anything. Um, yeah. I'm doing stunt work currently on a TV show. Well, we wrapped season one. It's called Heels and it's a pro wrestling action drama. Um, it's coming to stars uh, August 15th stars, Stephen Amell. He's had a match with Christopher Daniels um, in the beginning days of AEW and did a tag match in WWE. Um, but but yeah, it's two brothers running an indie fed in Georgia. And um, so when I got the gig um, through the stunt team, um, I submitted my look, my ring look, and they approved it. They said, yeah, you can do that on the show. And so, um, so I, I appear on the show. I don't have any lines, um, but I'm a wrestler who lives in that world. And I do a couple of stunts um, on the show. So that's a trip. Um, and they hint at the end. Well, actually, no, I better not say that. Um, I'll just I'll just say this. Um, some of the things coming up in season two, I really hope I can um, be a part of. But I, I don't know what the plans are. Um, and I guess we'll have to see if they do get a season two. But uh, um, but it's it's pretty exciting to to put the gear on to not get murdered, you know, and uh, funny. so it's it's a blast. Yeah. Awesome. Man. Uh, it's great to hear. I'm really excited to uh, check that out when it comes out. Um, Wanted to uh, move into talking about your experience living in Japan, uh, working in the film industry. Obviously, this is a big part of your life. Uh, please tell us a bit about that. It was a lifelong dream. Well, not lifelong dream, but um, I toured Japan when I was 20 years old, and I, I was just so blown away, so blown away, and never got that out of my mind. Um, so it was a long-term goal to live and work there in film. Um, pretty much anybody can get a job there teaching English. Um, and if you're an English native, English speaking, uh, native speaker. And, um, I had applied for that job and I got it. Um, and I actually interviewed in Canada, but I met so many people who say Japan's great, but you need to find another way to be there. And, um, so it's very controlled uh, oftentimes like the lessons and I, people just don't tend to really, if you, if you, your passion is teaching, it's, it's a good idea. If it's not, it's probably not a good idea. Um, so I turned down the job actually. Um, but in 2011, a big earthquake and tsunami hit Japan and there was mm -hmm. a nuclear power plant meltdown, the great triple disaster. Um, and that led to a job I got working as a documentary filmmaker um, up in the disaster zone, very suddenly. Like I've been studying the language, but I sure wasn't like ready. And I just got tossed in the deep end and it's just like, wow, I guess we're doing this. And um, that job lasted a year and I ended up staying about five years in Japan, um, continued to work in film and a little bit of acting, some stunts um, and production. So yeah, I loved it. Um, still a, a longer term goal of mine to maybe have a residence in Tokyo and one in the 
U.S. split my time. So, so he was uh, just going to ask then. Uh, well, so coming back to North America and um, working with John Moxley on vignettes, uh, how was that experience for you? Sort of coming back uh, to the U.S. Um, was there a sort of a culture shock per se? I'm um, giving you were in Japan for five years. The first time I came back to the U.S. after I was living in Japan was bizarre because I visited some places that I was familiar with. And I kid you not, it literally felt like everything doubled in size. It, it was so surreal, like just the streets, how wide they were, um, distances between places. We don't realize just how much space we have here. Japan is the size of California, um, yeah. but it has one third of our population. Um, and so Tokyo is very, very, um, condensed, very, very packed full of people. So, but I made the trip back and forth a bunch of times. And so by the time I came back, I wouldn't say it was culture shock. Um, it was refreshing though. Um, I love Japan. I, I adore Japan, but I don't think I ever want to be there like full time again. I'd like to be able to bounce back and forth because there are things I love here and there are things I love there, you know? Yeah, man, for sure. For sure. Um, so obviously, uh, you became a AW director um, in December of last year. So how did all that come about? I'm assuming this obviously has a direct correlation with um, your work with uh, John. And obviously you guys would have had the relationship already from um, CZW back in the day. Um, how had everything um, with you and AEW come about? And um, how did you start building that relationship? Well, yeah, as, as people know, John's contract expired with WWE. And prior to that, he had hired me to make a promo video um, to drop as soon as his contract expired. And so we did that. Um, that thing really made the rounds um, in the wrestling world. And so he hired me for a couple more. And um, yeah, from there, it was just kind of a natural progression. He went to AEW and um, then I ended up working for them. And what a, man, what an incredible trip that was. Um, I worked for them right up until the pandemic um, from the start of their TV show up until the um, pandemic. And so, like I say, it was like the, the honeymoon period, man, it was just so much optimism and um, seeing the responses, you know, in every single city that we would go to. So um, that was a trip. That was, <laughs> that was absolutely incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Matt, we, we, you became, ended up obviously becoming the AW director in December of last year. So what are your duties as a director of, at AEW consist of, and how may a usual day uh, sort of look like? Holy cow. Yeah. I kind of got tossed in the deep end. Um, I was, I was living in Los Angeles and I flew to Atlanta to check out the team that I would be working with. And it was just to see if we vibed, you know, like a three day trip, uh, um, visit and just chat with people. But I, I came in and I was sitting in the offices and I saw that they were working on an interview with, uh, Riho, um, but they don't speak Japanese and I, and I do, and I can edit um, Japanese. And so I need to keep a dictionary, you know, with me. Like I, like I, you know, I'm not like perfectly fluent, but I can edit in Japanese. And so I said, Hey, do you want me to take that on? Cause they had a much longer process of getting somebody to put subtitles on the raw footage and then chop it down from there. And, and they said, yeah, sure. And I realized there are so many fires to put out. Um, there are so many, you know, projects going on that I just they could use all the help they could get um, and then I was supposed to um, go back to LA and because um, we decided yeah it's, it's a good fit 
pack up my stuff and then move to Atlanta. Um, but one of my team members happened to be flying back to shoot stuff with uh, the Young Bucks. And, um, and then Brandy had an idea for a, a commercial. And it was just one guy going there to do all this stuff. And I'm like, you could kind of use some help. And, and so like in the midst of packing my stuff up, I'm running around corralling people and, and shooting stuff for the Bucks and with um, Scorpio, um, he uh, was in a commercial that we shot. And so uh, it happened very quickly. So it was so new and it was so fresh that like, the, it's true that AEW doesn't hire writers. Um, they've, they've got the executives, they've got um, the Bucks and they've got Kenny and Cody and uh, Tony and those, that's who makes the decisions. You know, that's, that's kind of how it is, but they don't have writers working for them. And so oftentimes, um, we can just pitch stuff or work with wrestlers. Here's the slot that you need to fill. We need a 90 second promo. Um, and so a lot of creative energy. It was a lot of just the wild west, you know, um, getting together with guys and, Hey, we want to make a, a nature show that Dustin Rhodes and I kind of, um, worked together on an idea with uh, Jurassic express and, um, had them out kind of foraging in the wild and, you know, um, Luchasaurus ripping leaves off the trees and eating them and jungle boys drinking river water and stuff is pretty funny but like it was just all stuff we came up with on the fly and hired a David Attenborough type narrator um and it's just, just a lot of fun I, I can remember Marco Stunt saying like this is my favorite part of wrestling um making videos and and Darby Allen said the same thing um the, the guy's got a lot of passion in the ring but a lot of these guys just love getting together and making short movies is what it is. It's a blast, you know? And so I had a ton of fun doing that. Yeah. It's awesome, man. You, you could tell like people like Darby love it. I mean, you, you look at the, his cameos that he does for people, man, like essentially like, you know, short little two minute films for these people. I mean, and everyone else would normally just sit in a camera. Hey, this is so-and-so and happy birthday. Whereas Darby Allen will, he will go 120% for his cameos. And I mean, that just, yeah, that was, just makes a lot of sense there to, um, that they'd love it. Uh, so back to you, Carl. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, now that my internet's uh, not uh, <laughs> letting me down, uh, I want to ask a little bit about um, another documentary that was made a while ago uh, called Unscarred, The Life of Nick Mondo. Um, and a bit of a random question, but, you know, all the things that you've done in your wrestling career, a lot of adrenaline will take place but i can't think of anything more that would would bring out adrenaline than throwing water bombs out of a car at people uh <laughs> the beginning of this documentary i'm in stitches over some of the pranks and some of the, the fun stuff uh, that you got up to back then do you have any uh fun stories of uh, pranks and, and such that you uh would do back in the day did you know i had to pay a pretty steep price for doing that the the water balloons out the car no, no. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, this, this of course was my idea, um, which oh, let me, I was going to say, I, I'll get back to that, but I just thought of something. I have a history of ideas that get people in trouble, um, but I was going <laughs> to say, we were coming back from an AEW show. I, I was just telling this the other day and we were in the Atlanta airport and um, Darby Allen likes to travel with his skateboard. And uh, so we got to this long corridor and it was full of people. And I was like, Darby, 
I bet you're not brave enough to skate the whole length of that thing as fast as you can. <laughs> he's totally like putting the board down and looking around. And, and I was like, Darby, Darby, Darby. Like, listen, I have a long history of daring people to do things and they end up getting in big trouble. And then he was like, and I have a long history of taking dares and getting in trouble. And I'm like, good, let's just not do this thing. <laughs> but anyway, back in my teen years, I, I came up with the idea, like, we, we were organized. We had two cars and there's like a driver and a thrower and then a driver and a, a filmer, you know, just to make sure we get the best shot. And uh, so we had like a whole laundry basket full of water balloons. And But we we're just having a blast driving around, hitting everybody in town and like, by the time we got back, I mean, there were like six reports to the police. They're like, no denying it. You know, like we weren't even thinking license plates and everything. And so, <laughs> of course. Oh, yeah. So we got busted. And um, I think it was just a fine and we had to do community service. Um, but but it was one of a couple of things that went on my permanent record because I was 19. And I'm just like, yeah, maybe we should stop with this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, the, 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 I guess you had to pay a price there, but um, you know what we got out of it was some uh, hilarious scenes there in that uh, documentary. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of documentaries, uh, moving forward to the trade, um, I want to know about your effort in making it stand out from other wrestling documentaries. Um, this must be a pretty special uh, piece that you put together for this. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll never make another film like it. It was one where I just opened up my psyche and whatever came out, came out. Um, I had an outline for how it was going to come together, but it was very much just like a, just dumping out everything that was inside of me, you know? And so it was just a, a trippy sort of a cerebral look at my career and psychological struggles and, and the difficulty of leaving it all behind and something I've struggled with, which is um, guilt for influencing younger generation to really walk in some dangerous footsteps. Because as we discussed earlier, my plan wasn't to have a long career. And so I didn't, that's something that's concerned me. Like I didn't lay a blueprint for a long wrestling career, uh, but most guys that get into it, that's what they're thinking. This is what I want to do with my life. And so, um, you know, I've come to terms with it now. It's like, I think when we want to do something, we find somebody who's doing it and we already make our decision. It's just like, where's an example of what we want to do? So I don't think like people see me and decide that's what they want to do. I think it's already in them and then they see it. Cause it's like, put it this way. Um, I knew I wanted to get into some really risky wrestling like I, I knew it after watching ECW um, but I didn't see Sabu at first he was away for whatever reason um, and I was just looking for a blueprint and then I see him and I'm like yeah that's the style I want to do um, but the decision was already made up in my mind you know what I'm saying so yeah awesome bro uh, Jack will throw it to you to those last couple of questions yeah I got a um, last couple more from here and um, then we'll get into our final segment with five second friends and then we'll look to uh, put a bow on this um, so I did really want to know about the uh, challenges between shooting in Japan and shooting in America um, I'm not too sure if there are many you know differences or any rules you got to follow uh, but being a media uh, student myself in uh, high school as well as um, going on to do TAFE um, I find this to be insanely interesting um, so what did you have any challenges between shooting in Japan and shooting in America 
you'll find a lot of red tape in Japan. Um, if you haven't been there, I really hope you can visit because it's such a different feel. Everything is ordered. Everything is predictable. Um, nobody answers their cell phones on the train. You'll never hear a ringtone go off on a train like the, they just silently text and, um, and nobody's talking on the train. Um, but it really has a, an adverse effect on art, in my opinion. There's so many rules you have to get through and it's, it's, it's difficult to get things moving in Japan. And it's just simply because of the rules. So if you want the, it's, I've never felt safer anywhere. I mean, I'm not the kind of guy that, you know, walk around New York City at night and feels like I'm at risk because I'm probably not the kind of person somebody's going to jump, but everybody just keeps to themselves in Japan and respects your private space even in the most uh, dangerous sections of Tokyo. Um, I, Kabuki-cho in Shinjuku is my favorite place to hang out or one of them. That whole part of town is run by the Yakuza, um, by the Japanese mafia and uh, they keep it safe. Um, the Japanese mafia pays taxes over there on their illegal dealings and the police appreciate this because they can track them, you know. They have businesses, they have offices. Um, so what I'm saying is like everything is predictable and everything has a rule book and everything is controlled and everything is safe. And that's how they want it there. Uh, it's beautiful for a living, but it's, it's challenging to get uh, film work done there. You, you can figure it out, but you have to earn people's trust. You have to sit down, have coffee with them, slowly earn their trust. And, and it's kind of the process, yeah. Yeah, man. Japan's on my bucket list to visit for sure. I mean, um, I, haven't left the, I haven't left the country in 20 years, but um, hey, maybe maybe Japan can be uh, the first place I visit uh, leaving the country when all this madness is over. Um, I just wanted to also just give you the opportunity before we move on to Five Second Frenzy, if you have any uh, sort of media in the pipeline that you would like to um, plug. I know you just did mention the um, other show before that you were working on, um, but was there anything uh, else that you were working on that you'd like to plug? My big push right now, it almost happened last year, um, is a thriller film with John Moxley. Mm, okay. The title is American Blood. We've been working on this for about two years now. Um, we had a deal to shoot it last year, but COVID messed that up. And so I'm trying to get that back on track. I just had a meeting earlier today. And so I'm fighting for that. My Instagram is Nick Mondo Media, if you want to... Um, you know, keep an eye, but I'll, I'll definitely be putting updates there if anything happens. So I'm trying. Awesome, man. Good stuff. Over to you, Carl. Awesome. Five second frenzy. Awesome. Yeah, no, that sounds exciting, but uh, something else that's exciting here uh, is our segment five second frenzy. It's about 10 to 12 quick fire questions. Uh, just about things that you like in life, mate. Um, it's, uh, you know, even if you don't get the answer in five seconds, it's okay. You won't get in trouble. But uh, the first question is, who is your favorite wrestler? Current or all time? All time. Hayabusa. Nice. Over the years in wrestling, who was your favorite opponent? The Messiah. Nice. Uh, what would you say, looking back, is the favorite match you ever had? Probably versus Messiah in California for Epic Pro. Excellent. Uh, getting away from wrestling now, finally. Uh, favorite book? 
Neuromancer by William Gibson. Wonderful. Uh, the next one, favorite TV show? All time. All time. Boy, that's tough. Yeah. <laughs> Usually it gets tough around this part. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can answer that one all time. Um, let's come back to that one. I can't. Uh, yeah, because that. <laughs> You know what? Like, there's so many shows they go astray a little bit. So yeah, I don't know if I can. I don't. I don't know if I want to just like pin ones. <laughs> yeah, I get you. Uh, the next one might make it even more difficult. What is your favorite film? If I have to pick, I'd say Alien, 1979. Nice. Uh, nice. Favorite musical artist? If I have to pick, I'd say The Cure or Joy Division. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, favorite food. Probably just really good spaghetti. I make really good spaghetti. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, favorite place to eat on the road? Chipotle. Nice. We've had that answer before. Uh, I'm not sure if you're much of a drinker, but uh, what would be your favorite alcoholic beverage? Kind of cheap, but uh, well, if not a nice bourbon, um, I drink Captain Morgan. I like Captain Morgan. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, the second last one here, Matt, your favorite female body part. <laughs> um, this is creepy. I have a thing for really cute noses. <laughs> I think that's the first time we've had that answer on the show. Very nice. I'm just not uh, trying to be polite here, but I do have a weird thing for really cute noses. So there you go. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that, my friend. Uh, and the final one for Five Second Frenzy, what is your favorite curse word? Mm. I'm trying to think of something creative here. <laughs> favorite curse word. Yeah, I don't think I have a favorite curse word. We'll, we'll pass on that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, mate. Well, that was... Our interview with the one and only Sick Nick Mondo, a.k.a. Matt Burns. What a great guy, a talented guy, and just a fantastic interview. So we want to thank you guys for watching the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WZWA Network, and we will see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>